Great, if you would, turn your Bibles to Psalm 137. You guys are just trying to make me apply my sermon preveniently. Psalm chapter 137, go sit down. Got elders wandering around. Psalm 137, that was nice, that was a sweet 45 seconds, um, or two minutes. Now we get to Psalm 137, which isn't quite so sweet, which is why I wanted to give you a little bit of time there. Uh, Psalm 137 is one of the more disturbing psalms, and frankly, one of the more disturbing passages in all of Scripture, in large part because it ends with this. May God bash their babies' heads against walls. That's rather distressing. It's because the psalmist who writes this psalm is really, really angry. Listen, uh, part of the Christian life, and frankly just part of the human experience, is the fact that we live in a world that is full of anger. And we are a people who are full of anger. You cannot spend more than 30 seconds on social media without either feeling angry yourself or seeing the vitriol of the anger of those in this world. Anger is everywhere. We're in a particular angry time in our country's life, right? Whenever the political season comes around, anger is spewed from every direction. We see it on the news every night with terrorist bombings. Jihadists seem pretty angry, don't they? They're angry about something. There was a couple weeks ago, there was a man who shot and killed a teenager who had the audacity at a traffic stop to look over and make eye contact with him. For some reason, he got so furious that he pulled out a gun and shot this teenage boy. There's anger in our music. There's anger in our airports. My goodness. There's a lot of anger in our airports, maybe for good reasons. And, and maybe to bring it closer to home, there's a lot of anger in our marriages. Marriage may even appear for some of us to be the seedbed of anger in our lives. Many of you came from very angry homes. The thing that, you most, that resonates with you about your mom or your dad is that they were angry. This is my great fear that my children, that their greatest recollection of their father is that he's an angry angry man. I'll tell you what, in my own particular life, it has not been lust. It has not been the use of my tongue. It has not been greed for money. It has been anger that has been the most significant problem that I've ever experienced. It has been with me seemingly every day of my life for as long as I can remember. This this passage um, talks about anger, and it's quite disturbing But it teaches us, I think here, if we will take it seriously, how to handle mistreatment and injustice and our anger over injustice in this world, whether that injustice is really small, like your sister taking your toy, or rather large, like somebody taking your child's life. Psalm 137, let's read that together. This is God's words. God's words. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible and errant word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Hey, let's pray. It'd be a good idea. Lord Jesus, um, uh, this is uh, an area that I feel overwhelmed to, to speak on in large part because I've seen so little success and growth and I've had so much turmoil in this area of my life. I fear um, for even, even the most sanguine brothers and sisters in this room that anger is actually ruining their life. That a root of bitterness is destroying them from the inside out. And gracious God, this is a confusing text for many of us. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. God, I, I pray that you would give me great wisdom, that my words would be um, surgical this morning. But Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would do a more surgical work than I can do on the hearts and lives of the men and women here. Prepare us to take your supper this morning by the proclamation of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this psalm points us to four things. Four things this morning. First, the psalm points us to the righteousness of anger. This is what we see in verses 1 through 6. What's going on here? There's a historical context to this psalm. It is being written um, in, during the exilic um, age, the, the time in which Israel is in exile in Babylon. There is a context in which they are, it seems to be that they're remembering when they were being led away from Israel and being led off to Babylon in captivity, and their captors are essentially mocking them by saying, why don't you sing the wonderful songs about your great God, Yahweh? And so what we see in the first couple of verses is they're going, no, we will not. In fact, we're going to throw our instruments in the trees, and may we go silent. We will not sing a mocking way of our Jerusalem, but at the same time, we will not forget its goodness. We will not forget how great it is. The historical context of this passage and what he goes on to say and why the psalmist is so angry is the psalmist is remembering what Babylon did to them and what their captures did to them when they entered the city. They're remembering two particular things and actually two different people. Here's the two memories. First is in verse 7. When a neighboring country, the Edomites, who hated Israel, they were kind of a blood enemies of them, when they realized that Jerusalem was being besieged by the big bad Babylonians, what did they do, it says in verse 7? They cheered. They came out with their ancient Near Eastern pom-poms, and they cheered for the Babylonians, and they cheered for the death of the Israelites. They cheered for these evil people. They said, tear down the city. Don't let one stone be left unturned. And so the psalmist is remembering their evil, the fact that they would cheer during these awful events that the people of Israel are experiencing. But the second thing, and what makes this psalm so appalling for so many of us when we read this, is the psalmist is remembering and thus saying that what justice would be is if what happened to us 
happens to those who have done these things to us? And what is the final things that, that the Babylonians have done to them? They have done what many captors did when people besieged a city and entered and, and captured and destroyed a city. Is this would, They would enter the city, and very often what you would see is not only taking people into captivity, but you would see significant amounts of ethnic cleansing. That anybody who was of age, anybody who was not of use to them, either sexually or physically, to be used for uh, toil in their home country, they would slaughter them. And in particular, he is remembering what exactly what the Babylonians would have done, which is they would have entered the city, and then mothers would have been screaming, running away from these captors, and they would have swiped those babies out of their parents' arms and destroyed them in front of their parents. So let me ask you this. If that has happened to you, or if you've seen that happen to one of your neighbors, or frankly, if you simply heard about that happening in this world, do you think it would be evil and unjust of you to go, may this same evil be done upon them? What the psalmist is crying out for here is for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand. He is angry And guess what? On these kind of things, we ought to be extremely angry that this kind of stuff happens in our worlds. The Bible can, in the Bible, anger can actually, it is essentially at its core, is viewed as a positive thing. Too often, very sweet, sanguine, peaceable, pietistic Christians would say, oh no, no expressions of anger is ever good. But in the reality, the rest of the world, very often, it's it's go ahead and just express your anger in any way you, sh- you should. I once had a, a counselor tell me that if I really got really angry, I should take a baseball bat, go out to the woods, and beat down a tree. It wasn't very effective. I also think about Seinfeld. Seinfeld, uh, Kramer, if you remember Silly Kramer, who had an anger problem, he kept saying, serenity now, serenity now. And he would begin to scream it, trying to give vent to his anger. The show ends like this, serenity now, insanity later. Give venting vent to your anger. The Bible takes neither of those approaches. The Bible's view of anger is this, that we, ought to, we should not ever get angry, that, that, we, that we need to get angry, but that we shouldn't just give voice to our anger in an unrestrained way. It is we are to be slow to anger, to not sin in our anger. When God is described in the Old Testament, what is the most often description of God that we see throughout the Old Testament? It goes like this. Moses experienced this when God came to introduce himself to Moses on the mountain. He said, I am God, slow to anger, steadfast in love, slow to anger. This is who we are to be. There is a command there to be angry, but to be slow to beginning angry. This is also what we see in Ephesians 4.26. A fairly famous passage of the New Testament where it says this, Be angry and do not sin. It's interesting, we usually focus on that passage to tell people, don't get angry. But actually, there's two imperatives in the text. There's one that says, don't sin in your anger. But the other, the first is this, be angry. It's an imperative in Ephesians 4 that there are reasons to be getting angry. If you don't get angry, then you're not like Jesus. Jesus got angry. He got angry at death. He got angry at hypocrisy. He got angry at false teachers. John Chrysostom, who's uh, essentially one of the, the first, the, the earliest, the early church's fa- first famous preacher. There's many famous theologians in the early church, but this was a, a man in the mold of Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones, the early church's kind of wonderful preacher and pastor of that day. And he said this about anger. He said, uh, he, he said this, the anger without cause sins. 
So anger without good cause sins. But he who is not angry, when there is cause, sins as well. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. I've been reading the um, biography of Winston Churchill, and where I've been in his biography has been in the 30s, when Churchill was the only man seemingly in England who stood up and was shouting to the rooftops that this Hitler guy was a problem. But the guy who was in charge of England, the prime minister at that point, was a guy named Neville Chamberlain. And year after year after year, despite the reports that were coming out of Germany, despite the fact that Hitler would trounce over country after country, Neville would lean back and go, it's all right. We just need to appease them. There is a time and place to get angry. The slaughter of millions of Jews is a time and place to get angry. We as modern people have a problem with this, though. With a God who would get angry. With the expression of anger. We, we, as modern people, so often we would say, we don't have a God of anger, we have a God of love. But we make, we make a false dichotomy there. You see, God's anger flows from God's love. If you don't have a God who gets angry, then brothers and sisters, you don't have a God who is loving. Abraham Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Heschel said this, the anger of God exposes something about God's tenderness and care. The secret of God's anger is his care. Becky Pippert, who's a writer um, and evangelist, said this, anger is not the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. If you care for someone, then you'll get angry about their patterns of self-destruction. Parents, you should get angry about the things that are destroying your children's lives, the sins, the addictive patterns in their life that are leading them down the path of destruction. David Paulson, who's a wonderful Christian counselor and writer, says this, all forms of anger follow this pattern. That matters. It's wrong. I'm displeased. I'm against, against it. I must change it. Anger is a driving force, a redemptive driving force in this world to bring about change in the things that we love. Tim Keller, one more quote. He says this, Anger is love in motion towards a threat to that which you love. You should get angry when someone threatens your child, right? That's the right thing to do. I love the description of Jesus in the face of Lazarus, of death at Lazarus' tomb. The description there is essentially it says this, is that Jesus snorts like a war horse. That this is what Jesus is doing, that he is putting his hooves into the ground about to destroy death. He was angry at death. We ought to get angry about many things in this world. There is an essential goodness to anger. There is a justice to it. I'll say it again. If you don't have a God who gets angry, then you don't have a God of love. And in fact, if you don't have a God who gets angry, then you don't have a God who redeems this world. Maybe one, one other quote. Anger is the energy and impetus behind wrath, and there's a redemptive purpose to it. David Murray backs this same thought up. He's a professor of Old Testament theology at the Peterson Reform uh, Seminary, and he has a fairly famous Christian blog known as Head, Heart, Hands. But he says this about when he writes about uh, imprecations or cursing verses in the Scriptures. He said, the imprecations of Scripture, that is, verses in which the biblical writers are calling for God to bring curses and judgment down on other people, the imprecations, imprecations of Scripture reflect the zeal of God's people for the kingdom of God and their passionate hatred of sin and evil. God's kingdom comes by defeating and destroying all other competing kingdoms. This is really saying that all blessing and cursing are two sides of the same coin. Real compassion for the wronged can exist only beside indignation against wrongdoing. 
along with the desire for the coming of God's kingdom, comes a desire for the fullness of God's kingdom. And one cannot desire that fullness without also desiring the destruction of evil. When the kingdom of heaven comes, what we have at the end of all days is that God's heaven, as it is in heaven, will become like, it, uh, what happens on earth will be like it is in heaven right now. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. May the kingdom of heaven come down. And that means that some evil is going to have to be dealt with, it's going to have to be judged, and it's going to have to be eradicated. And parents, brothers and sisters, you know this. The anger that flows from love. When my daughter was in her first year of, of kindergarten or pre-K, we were living in Mississippi, and there was a kindergarten that was connected to our church. And she was the youngest in her class. She hadn't even quite turned two. She was like, she's on one of those cutoffs. She's in an August birthday. And so she had just turned two right after the school year started. She was the youngest in the class and rather little. And there was an older boy, the oldest in the class, was not only the oldest in the class, but he was um, from one of those stocks, that DNA that was rather large. His mom was 6'1", his dad was hefty and large, and he had that DNA fully. Well, it came about that one day, uh, actually, uh, the kindergarten, uh, the leader, the director of the kindergarten had to come and talk to my wife and I, because on multiple occasions, this young boy had pinned down my daughter, sat on her, and was hitting her face over and over and over again. Now, this happened not once, not twice, but three times. We never heard a word from the parents of apology or saying we're going to do something about this. And so on the third time when I got word about this, my anger was riled up just a bit. And I told the kindergarten director, here I was a pastor at the church, and this is a member of the church, and I said, if I hear about this happening again, I'm going to kick that kid into a tree. <laughs> and I was really serious. I wanted someone to hold his little head there, and I was going to punt him like Charlie Brown. Because I was sick and tired of it. Now, that's a great example of both righteous indignation, but probably sinful as well. <laughs> that's our transition, brothers and sisters. You like that. And the second thing this psalm points to is it points to the destructive power of anger. Not only is, is anger can be righteous, and at its core it is, it's also incredibly powerful. The psalmist, I believe, actually handles this situation rather righteously, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But you can see in the vitriol, in his, in, in his anger over injustice, his vitriol, and just how destructive his desires are. That he desires to see babies crushed, peoples destroyed. There is nothing that can destroy more quickly than anger. It destroys relationships, it destroys churches, it destroys countries, and it can destroy you physically. There's almost nothing that can destroy you more quickly, not even stress, than anger does. We actually see, see this in Proverbs. It talks about how anger rots the bones. It creates so much bile in your system and acids in your system that it destroys you from the inside out. Literally, physically, anger does this. Anger, I heard one pastor call it, is the dynamite of the soul. It will destroy you. It is destructive and it has unbelievable power because God has given it with great power. Because anger has meant, is meant to be redemptive. It's meant to be used as a surgical device to cut out the things in this world that are unjust, that are not right. 
And yet, if it's falsely or inappropriately used, it can be incredibly destructive. And here's the question, why do we lose control of our anger? Why do we lose control of our anger? Or why are we angry so often, for that matter? I think the answer, the core of the issue is this. The answer is distorted love. Right? It makes sense. If anger flows from love, then where it goes wrong, it's connected to something wrong with what we love. Sin, according to St. Augustine, is disordered love. How does our anger get disordered? Even the anger that we should feel, right? The anger I, I should have felt angry about a three-year-old pummeling my daughter week in and week out. But it became unrighteous indignation when I wanted to destroy him, right? There's something wrong with that. There's something over the top about that. Disordered loves mean there are things in this world that are, that are good, but we have made them ultimate. We talk about this so many times here. Ultimate thing, or not ultimate things, things are good in this world that we have made ultimate, things that are now above God. It may be our security, it may be our money, it may be our children. Tim Keller actually tells a great story about um, counseling two women who are extremely angry at their husbands, very angry at their husbands. And he found it interesting, he was baffled, he, he was over time of counseling these two different women at different times, and he found that he called them to forgive, they need to forgive their husbands for what they were angry about, and he said it was interesting because the woman who definitely had the more scoundrel of a husband forgave. Her husband had been a significant failure as a parent, and their, ch- their, their son had, had rebelled, in, in, in large part in response to his father's inadequacies and his father's failures. But it was interesting, he said, that the wife who had the far more responsible husband and father, whose child had also rebelled, she could not forgive him. She remained angry at him. And he said he found this perplexing. Why is it that the woman whose husband was far worse off could forgive that man, but the woman whose husband was actually fairly good, was fair, had a lot of integrity in the way he raised his kids, she couldn't get over her anger with him. And he said he realized this. So that the woman who couldn't forgive, he realized that her idol in this world, the things that was ultimate, was her son. And because her husband had failed to do well by her son, she could not forgive him. We have disordered loves. We have disordered loves, and we get angry in so many different ways because of this. Our disorder, our, our distortion of our anger gets all out of whack in all different kinds of ways. And it causes all kinds of problems. Here's just a few. We get angry about trite and silly things that ought not matter, right? This is disorders. You're angry in traffic. Why? Because my time is worth more than your time. Someone's late. Why does it, why does it bother you more that people uh, delay, are delayed in answering your texts? Why are you more angry about that than the fact that there's people dying every day of malnutrition and no water? That seems rather disordered, doesn't it? I mean, you're stomping around the house because your wife didn't have food ready for you right as you walked in the door, but there's people dying. Now listen, you and your food, that sounds legitimate, right? No, these are disordered loves. We get angry in disproportionate ways as well, don't we? That was the issue with me. Listen, I had every right to be angry with a kid who was beating up my daughter, but my anger with him was rather disproportionate. Yeah, you have this. You experience this often as a parent if you have children, especially little kids, right? One child takes a toy from another kid. Oh my word! It's World War III in your house. This disproportionate anger. You have taken my love. 
often have the situation with a particular child in our family who is more guilty of this than any other. Forgot that this child was moving up today. I asked, and I would ask this, this particular child, uh, I would ask this, this is just, this is just generational sin. My dad's a pastor, and this is what he did to me. But, um, and I turned out okay. Um, I have shame issues left and right, but it's okay. Uh, I ask this question. I ask, I get, try, try to get to the heart of the issue. And when you screamed and hit your sister because she took a toy, what did you care about more in that moment? Did you care more about your sister or about a toy? And more than that, who did you care about more? Did you care about obeying God who calls you to love your sister or did you care about a toy? It's the heart of the issue. Many of you need to have God ask you that question or maybe your spouse ask you that question as you're stomping around the house angry at your kids. Another example of disproportionate and out-of-ordered anger is, because of, is our bitterness. For many of us, for many of you, because of your personality, because of your upbringing, for many of us, the real cause of destruction in our life is the long boil of bitterness. You may not have the anger in regards to the, the effusive temper, where you're just screaming at everyone around you and stomping around, but you are an angry person. I see this, this comes out with very sweet sanguine people in my office, the marriages, that they, they seem so pleasant, but they are seething with anger at their spouses. Being slow to anger means that the anger rises. It takes a long time. A bitterness, though, is when you get angry, and it's a long boil. It doesn't go away. These are two very different things. You know, bitterness is just anger that stays on the surface. It's where, listen, if you can imagine your temper as being the tree that springs up, and you've chopped the big, large tree out, but what does the Bible call bitterness? It calls it a root of bitterness. And what does it do? It destroys the ground from underneath. All the acid in that tree destroys your life. And some of us refuse to even let go of our anger because of something you did years and years and years ago, and you are seething with anger still. And one last one. Your disordered anger is shown in the fact that you get so angry with God. The greatest distortion, the greatest distortion of of ordered anger is our anger at God. God, you could have done something about this. God, you should have done something about this. God, you were supposed to give me that and you didn't. And we get angry. You were created by God to be loved by Him. Yet so often we reject Him, run away to other things. And so what does He do? He says, you know what, I'm going to take that from you. To return you to me. But what is our often our response? Ah! The response of a three-year-old. How dare you taking that from me? This is my kingdom and my life. We show. This is exactly, you know, this is what Satan thought he could do with Job, isn't it? If God, if you'll just take away all of Job's great blessings, he'll turn, he'll he'll reject you, he'll get angry at you and be done with you. But Job was a righteous man. He got angry, but he didn't turn against the Lord. So what do we do with our anger? What do we do with this? We see that it's, it's righteous, so there's time and places where we ought to be angry, and yet we see that there, we, we, so, it's so easy for us to be disproportionate in our response and to have our anger flow from a disordered love. So what do we do? I think this psalm points, this is your third point this morning, it points us to how to deal with our anger, what to do with our anger. Two things. First, he prays his anger. Once again, we come back to this, it seems, week in and week out. Where does the psalmist go with his emotions? 
He doesn't deny them. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't view them as illegitimate. Instead, he says, I'm going to take these emotions and I'm going to take them to God's. Unrighteous anger refuses to take anger to God's, to take our questions to Him. We don't want to hear from Him. Our reaction to the pain and injustice of His life will only become godly anger as we take it and interact with our anger towards the Lord's in, in interaction and relationship with God's. Not only that, but I would say this, that when you go to God in prayer with your anger, it functions like a sacred, divine count to ten. You see, you get, you get into God's presence. Listen, I don't know about you, but if I actually get in God's presence and begin meditating on who He is and what He has done, it kind of maybe shifts my emotional state every once in a while. It allows me actually to do some evaluation, begin asking myself some questions like, why am I so angry about this? This seems a little bit disproportionate. This is a little bit distressing that I want to kick a three-year-old in a tree. I should ask God about that anger. And the place to do that is in prayer. The second thing, once you've, if you've figured out that your anger and asked yourself some good questions in prayer and you've realized that it is legitimate, you still have another step to take. The second thing that we see the psalmist do, does is they submit, the psalmist submits their anger to God's justice. And so we are to submit our anger to God's justice. Does the psalmist want justice? Absolutely. Does he want vengeance? Yeah. But is he go, does he go to God and say, you know what, God, I would like you to give me really great big muscles and a great opportunity to break their teeth. That's what I want. Is that what he asked for? No. He goes to God and he says, God, will you break their teeth? This is actually a pretty, a pretty big difference. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, to take up the King James, as you probably memorized it as a kid. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Righteous anger will give it up to the Lord in his justice. This is what the psalmist is not only asking here, is not only saying, listen, I'm going to put aside my anger. I'm not going to let it go to the limits that I can take it and bring about justice, vigilante justice myself, but actually I'm going to cry out to you, God, to be the judge. And that is incredibly, that's going to point us to something else. And this is, our, this is moving to our third point. So we need to pray our anger. I mean, you also need to take it and give it up to God and His justice. But when we take our, our anger to God, we're asking God to judge these people. By what standards? By the same standard by which He has judged us. And what standard is that? The longing for the justice of God, of giving up our desire to play judge and executioner and submitting to God's judgment and God's justice point us to a greater context for this psalm in the Bible. You don't like to be taken out of context, do you? That's never fun when someone takes your words and twists them out of context. Let me, let me get to this this way. We're, we're looking at the fourth point now. This psalm points beyond itself. I'm going to ask him to get there this way. Can we pray this psalm? Can you pray for the children of ISIS to have done to them what they have done to people in the Middle East? Can you pray this psalm? This is a great dilemma for theologians. Can we pray the imprecatory psalms, calling down God's curses upon the people in this world? Let me say it this way. I, I think we can. I think we can, I think we can, we can pray these prayers. In large part because I see in the New Testament that there's imprecatory prayers there as well. Jesus takes up imprecatory prayers. But let me also say this. If, this is what, if our prayer ends here, then it's a sin. 
You see, God is what, what the psalmist is calling for here at the end of this passage is he's calling for God's justice to come down. But then he says, God, I will wait for your justice. It's your, I'm giving it up to your vengeance and your judgments to do what you see fit. But you reveal your justice. Bring your justice on this earth. Well, did you know that in the gospel, justice came? And we know that justice. We have more information than the psalmist did. And so, yes, we pray this prayer, but we got to go further. we got to go further in our prayer about justice. Because the psalmist was waiting. We have actually seen God's wrath and God's anger and God's justice poured out. See, the psalmist, what does he ask for here? He's asking for the children of the, of the wicked to be dashed, to be crushed. What is God's answer in the gospel? God is just. God, God wants justice in this world. And so what's his answer? His answer is, all right, I'm not going to dash their children. I'm not going to crush their children. I will crush my own son. I will bash his head in. I, what does it say? We read it in this morning, Psalm 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see, there was a child who was crushed. God's answer to, da- to the, the psalmist cry, it's not David, the psalmist cry here is that God would crush the children. God says, I will. I'll crush my own son. This must change the way we pray. Or it must change where we end in our prayers. The prayer of this psalmist points beyond itself to the fulfillment of God's justice at the cross. And that changes things. The psalm points beyond itself to Jesus. And it points to two particular things about Jesus here. And what do you see? A and B. First is it points to the love in Jesus' anger. Remember? Anger flows from God's love, to the love of Jesus. God's anger is wed to his love, and this is what we see. The description in the Old Testament, where we always see when it says that God is slow to anger, it goes on to say that God is also steadfast in his love. He is compassionate. And Psalm 137, this horrific psalm, is actually, you know, it's actually alluded to in Luke 19 when Jesus is entering, and a triumphal entry. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters in and he looks over the city and he actually says there's curses coming upon this city. And it's actually the only place in all the New Testament in which we see this word dashed use. Crushed. Jesus says in reference to the, to the city of Jerusalem, he says your enemies will dash you to the ground and your children within your walls because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Jesus takes up imprecation. Why is this so, so remarkable? What, what he's pointing to here is he's pointing to AD 70, which within 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension, what we find is the Romans come in and they absolutely and utterly destroy Jerusalem. They annihilate, they take the healthy people into slavery, and they destroy and they kill everybody else. And the stories of that era and that time are gruesome and disgusting of their hatred and their wrath that came down on Jerusalem. So why, why is it so remarkable about this, though? Jesus prays this prayer, or he, he declares this curse on the city of Jerusalem. But then what does he do? It says he goes on to say this, that he weeps for you, Jerusalem. He comes in and he says, listen, this city, because of the rejection of me, curses are going to fall upon them. Judgment is going to fall upon them. And then what does he do? He weeps for the city. He longs for the city to be healed. And then what does he do? He goes and dies on the cross for that city, for the people of that city. The psalmist is 
trusting in God's judging retribution, but God's retribution has been revealed in Christ Jesus. In other words, this has got to change our prayers about particular people that we're really angry about. When you see another atrocity by ISIS, you've got to pray, God, but you bring your justice down. But you need to pray that through a gospel lens, which is, God, would you bring healing upon them? Would you pour out your justice on their behalf in Jesus Christ? But your wrath was poured on their son. May they be found in him. This is what Jesus feels. He's longing. He said, listen, this is what's coming. He warns of the destruction to come. And yes, we should, we should warn people. We're going to get to that in a second. But we ought, to, we ought to weep. We ought to cry. How do you know if your anger is righteous or if it's unrighteous? It's whether you can weep for the very people that you're angry at. Jesus does this in Mark chapter 3, verses 5. And he says he's really angry at the Pharisees because they're questioning whether he can, he can heal somebody on the Sabbath. And so he's just like, this, these guys are ridiculous. And so what he says is he looks around at them with anger. Grieved, this is what he says, he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Do you see what's going on in Jesus' heart? He's angry with them, but he's also grieving for them. And longs for their healing. This is how you know your anger is righteous. Am I grieved with the one for whom I am angry? I have, I have brief experiences of this as a parent. Where I'm truly, I'm not disciplining my child out of anger, but I'm truly grieving for them, even as I'm bringing discipline into your, their life. I'm, I'm angry with them, but I'm not punishing them. I'm not trying to push them away from me. This is what God calls us to. You see the love of Jesus. Second, you've got to see the healing actions of Jesus' anger. You see, anger ultimately is a, is a tool in God's hands to bring redemption, and it's a surgical tool. You, you see how wonderful and amazing? Here's the dilemma for God is I am angry at sin. And in fact, I'm angry at the sinner. But how do I pour out my wrath and not destroy the sinner so that I can still be in a relationship with these, these image bearers of mine? It's a surgical strike. He surgically strikes the sin and doesn't crush the sinner. He does that in Jesus for us. Anger is designed to drive us to action, to eradicate the threat towards those things that we love. And I think Jesus does it in three ways. First, Jesus warns, and so we ought to warn. When you're angry with someone, this is what Jesus is doing here in the triumphal entry. He's actually warning the people of Jerusalem. There is a, there is a second triumphal entry coming. It is a day of judgment. It is coming. You have to warn someone. Marriages, spouses, you should set up boundaries. You should warn somebody. Don't just fly off the handle with your temper. You warn. If you have righteous anger, you will say, this is causing problems in our relationship. There's going to be consequences for us. We're going to, lack, we're going to lose intimacy if you continue down this path. That's a warning, right? You warn your children. This is not the, this is, in fact, this is a point of discipline, isn't it? To warn them of what's coming. The second thing Jesus does is he wounds Righteous indignation can be so intense, but it is never a mere explosion of fury. Again, this is the surgical strike in our anger, that we are not desiring to destroy and crush people any longer, but instead, with a gospel perspective on anger, is we are desiring to wound towards healing. When you cut someone open surgically, you are wounding them, but with the purpose of healing as the end goal. This is the purpose of church discipline, isn't it? to bring healing and grace upon the person who has sinned. Jesus wounds. We see this with the Apostle Peter, right, doesn't he? 
He calls out Peter. He wounds Peter. He asks Peter three times and actually says that Peter is hurt when, as, as he is at, on, the, on the beach. He's asking Peter, why, why, why? And Peter is hurt by all these questions Jesus asks, asks him. He's wounded by it, but he does it for the desire to restore him. Frederick Buechner says this. He says, a friend is one who gives and receives wounds well. Do you have a friend who can give you wounds that's what we ought to do. When, in our anger, are you simply trying to crush people, to destroy them, to eradicate them from your life, or are you seeking to wound them in order to restore them to relationship? Lastly, lastly, we see that Jesus willingly forgives. So Jesus warns, he wounds, and he willingly forgives. Forgiveness is the sutures and the cleansing after the wound has been made. He restores us to relationships. What does Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Unbelievable words. So let me ask you this, Christian. Are you willing to seek the healing of your enemies? This is one of the most profound, countercultural, counterhuman responses we see in the Scriptures. We see, I mean, it's not just in the New Testament. We see in the Old Testament as well. In Proverbs, it actually says this, a gentle answer, answer turns away wrath be gentle in the face of wrath. And if someone comes up to you, it says with a harsh word, you respond gently. And then look, and then later on it says in that same chapter, chapter 15 of Proverbs, if you have an enemy, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. The upside down nature of this life. You're called to give friendship, to love our enemies. That's ridiculous. Let me give you one illustration to bring us to a close this morning, a biblical one, to, add, to bring you to bear the question. Are you a Jonah or are you a Jesus? When people hurt you and you're angry. You know, in Jonah, in the story of Jonah, it's an interesting one. God goes to Jonah and he says, hey, I want you to go to the Ninevites, who are Syrians, which were, in ancient Near Eastern history, were like the epitome of disgusting destruction of cities. They were known for their brutality. And ancient history. And he says, Jonah, I want you to go um, call the Ninevites to repent or else I'm going to destroy them all. And what, is, what does Jonah do? Jonah says, uh, no, thank you. He disobeys God. Now, what is, now, do you think God might be a little bit annoyed by this? If, you, if someone told you to go care for your children, or told, told, if you went and told somebody else to go care for, their, for your children, you, had a, you got a babysitter, you say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to care for them in this way. And they refused to do it and said they left the house. This is what Jonah's doing. God's saying, listen, those are my image bearers. I want you to go proclaim the gospel to them, calling them to repent for judgment is coming. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. And so he disobeys. It's an act of hatred. It's an act of wrath on Jonah's part. But what does God do? Is God happy with Jonah? No, he's rather displeased with Jonah, isn't he? He goes after Jonah. He sends a storm after Jonah, which in, the, in that world, in the ancient world, storms were known as, as understood as the wrath of God, the anger of God upon these people. In fact, it says that in the, in the account, the, soldiers, the sailors understood, man, God must be really angry with us. And Jonah understood it as well, so because he said, yeah, you got to kick me overboard. you got to kick me overboard. So Jonah gets kicked overboard. You know the rest of the story. The whale swallows him. He spits him out in three days. Jonah uh, supposedly repents, and what does he do? He says, okay, God, I'm going to go obey you. He goes to Nineveh, he proclaims, he says, repent for God's judgment is coming, and lo and behold, to Jonah's everlasting frustration, the Ninevites repent. And he goes out, and he sits, and he pouts, and he says, God, I knew you would do this, this is why I didn't want to go. I knew you would forgive them. You were supposed to destroy these suckers, but instead you've forgiven them. 
I don't want any part of this. How can you do that? He's angry with God. Then God, <laughs> Jonah's so angry he wants to die, but God provides him a plant to provide for him, to care for him. God's forgiveness once again for Jonah. And then God takes away the plants. And then Jonah gets really angry again. The whole point of the book of Jonah is asking Israel this one story. Will you love image bearers like I love image bearers? Will you be compassionate as I'm compassionate? Will you let your anger flow out of your love as my anger flows out of my love? You see, this is what, G- what Jonah is asking. It's kind of like the Micah mandate. You know what the Micah mandate is? The Micah mandate is this, to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with your God. That is not who Jonah is. Here's Jonah. Jonah hated mercy, he despised justice, and he walked very arrogantly with his God. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, this is how we're known for as well. That we hate mercy, we despise justice, and we walk very arrogantly around all the unrighteous people in our world. Those sinners outside the church. But what does Jesus do? Jesus not only brings a message of salvation, but even when they're going to crush him, when they're going to pour out their anger upon him, he says he weeps for them and then forgives them on the cross. Listen, brothers and sisters, will you, could you weep for ISIS? Could you, could you weep for that person in your family, that parent who was so horrendous to you? Listen, you have a right to be angry, but could you weep for them? You're going to come to a place where your anger can be used for redemptive power that seeks healing that through wounding and warning and forgiving. And here's what you must see. You must see that when the Son of God was crushed, you must see that when the Son of God was crushed, it was God's anger that should have been poured out on you was poured out on His Son. That's not justice for all those sinners out there. That was justice for you. This is the penny that didn't drop in Jonah's head. I deserve God's anger and His wrath. And yet he sent a whale to save me. I'm so angry about the sinners being forgiven. Listen, brothers and sisters, where we will not pray for people's healing, even those who have wounded us deeply, we show ourselves to be Jonah's. Would you come and understand what God says, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, that he's talking about you. That the anger and wrath of God, which should have been poured out on you, Jesus took that cup. Jesus took the sword that should have been over you. He took it upon himself. If you understand that, if you, understand, if you get that, if the penny of the gospel drops in your heart, then listen, you can look at the abortionist, and you look, look and look at the terrorist, and you can look at the motorist, and you can remove the sword that you hold over them. Let's go to the table where we experience and see God's wrath poured out for us.